Welcome to this week's Sabbath School Fact Check. We are going through the Sabbath School lessons week by week, and this week we're doing the second lesson in the New Quarters collection, which is entitled Psalms. This week's lesson is specifically entitled Teach Us to Pray. Now, you know, it's interesting that somebody commented on one of my recent videos about the Sabbath School lesson, whoever taught you, I don't know. I know I never learned the things you've been teaching. And I just want to say, I learned these things that we're talking about by living in Adventism. I learned them by sitting in Adventist Sabbath School classes, in Adventist Bible classes, and by living my life in an Adventist community that talked to me about how to understand the Bible and how to relate to God from an Adventist viewpoint. To be sure, I didn't have it all spelled out to me in the specific ways that I'm unpacking it, but that's because I lived inside the worldview. We Adventists, we who were born into it, absorbed Adventism with our mother's milk, so to speak. We didn't have to be taught all of the things we believed in our worldview. It was assumed. It was assumed, for example, that vegetarianism was better than eating meat, that eating meat would cause cancer. It was assumed that going to church on Sabbath was the only right thing to do, and anybody who went to church on Sabbath was pretty close to being able to be saved, even if they weren't Adventist. Even a Seventh-day Baptist, for example, was closer to the truth than a Sunday-keeping Christian. Now, these things were not part of a curriculum. These things are absorbed in the culture. You know what I mean. We've all lived that. So when I'm talking about what I learned as an Adventist, I'm talking about two kinds of learning. Direct, overt, objective learning, which did happen. I was taught. And subjective absorption from living in the culture, from living with a mother who, despite doing her best, nevertheless managed to instill in me the fear that I would not be good and that I could not be saved if I was not good. There was no sense of being born again because my parents didn't understand that either. So when I talk about this lesson teach us to pray, and what the authors of this Sabbath School Quarterly are saying about the Psalms in relationship to teaching Adventists to pray, I'm speaking from my lived experience inside Adventism. I'm speaking about beginning to understand at this point in my experience what's wrong with these lessons. Why are these lessons so insipid? Why are they so uninsightful, so non-powerful? I understand that now, because now I know the Jesus of the Bible, and the Bible looks different to me. So, I'm going to share again my three points that I've picked out to specifically address in this lesson. The three problems I've identified are these. This lesson's unspoken foundation is Adventism. And Adventism is unbelief in the revealed will of God in Scripture. Now, I know Adventists will argue with me about that, but we'll talk about that. The second point is, this lesson suggests that praying and studying and reading the Psalms can unite the reader to Christ, 
who is their example. Again, that's not how we are united to Christ. And trying and praying the Psalms will not make it happen. And finally, the Psalms are presented in this lesson as teaching people to express themselves without fear. They're not presented as revelations of God's faithfulness to sinners submitting their sins and needs to God's will. Rather, the Psalms are presented here as teaching us how to pray properly. So, this Adventist worldview, that is the assumption of this lesson, is not discussed in the lesson, but I have to discuss it because it affects how we understand what the lesson is saying. The Psalms are useful aids to be sure for praying. Any Christian will be able to tell you that, but a Christian will understand it from a perspective of a biblical worldview instead of from an Adventist worldview. From an Adventist perspective, the Psalms are explained as leading the worshiper through learning words for expressing their feelings without fear and not worrying about God being offended by their negative emotions. It further suggests that people often suppress their feelings and don't want to deal with their negative feelings and reactions to the things going on in their lives, and that the Psalms gives them permission to say whatever they want. Oh Lord, rain down destruction on your enemies. That feels pretty good, but you have to understand the perspective of God's holiness before that kind of prayer makes sense. It is the unspoken assumptions underneath this lesson that make this lesson powerless. Adventism assumes its members are believers. There is never a doubt in an Adventist mind that he's a believer. After all, if they've accepted Jesus, if they accept Adventist doctrine, if they accept the truth of the Seventh-day Sabbath and the fact that it is the mark of all of those who will be saved at the end when Jesus comes, if they accept the fact that going to church on Sunday risks giving them the mark of the beast, if they accept the idea that Ellen White was used by God at some point in history to help Adventists become established and understand God's will, if they accept the idea that Jesus gave up his divine attributes, or at least many of them, when he came to earth, so he could be just like us and show us how to live, if they accept that, they believe that they're believers. But that Jesus that they believe gave up divine attributes, that Jesus that they believe gave up his omnipresence by taking a body, that Jesus cannot be God. For any attribute of God to be given up, that means that being is not God. The Lord Jesus of the Bible gave up none of his attributes, not even his omnipresence. So, believing in the wrong Jesus means not believing unto salvation. So it is all of these assumptions that underlie this lesson. These assumptions aren't mentioned, but these are the things that make this lesson powerless and frustrating. So what is going on with the way Adventism teaches the Psalms here? Adventism sees God as limiting himself in order to protect their free will. They see him as 
not sovereign in that ultimate value sense that the Bible presents him as sovereign. They believe that people have the ability and the right to accept Jesus or not, to accept him and then fall out of salvation and then come back into salvation and then fall out of salvation. Well, that can only be a worldview if you believe that salvation is about, as my mother taught me, being good. But salvation isn't about being good. Salvation is about believing God. Like Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, he believed God when God told him, you, the childless man, will have a son and will have descendants as numerous as the stars of the heavens. You will own this land that I am giving you. You will be a blessing to the nations. And Abraham's going, I'm as good as dead. Paul tells us that in Romans 4. I'm as good as dead. How can this happen? But he believed God, and God made it happen. That is the mark of becoming a believer. A true believer believes God, submits himself or herself to God's teaching and self-revelation. That is what renders us able to see the Psalms for what they really are revelations of our sovereign God and of his faithfulness to his own promises, to his own covenants, and of what it sounds like for someone who believes God to hold him to his own word. That's very different from the Adventist way of going, this person lamented. Let us lament just as David showed us how. Let us lament as the sons of Korah lamented. No, that's not the point. Of course we are to lament if we need to lament, but we come from a different position if we are under the word of God and submitted to the finished work of Jesus. There's a quote from Monday's lesson that sets the stage for this subjective approach to the Psalms, and I'm going to read it because it's hard to explain it's really there. So I'll give you the words of the author himself. The selectiveness of psalms in church worship services often reflects the exclusiveness of moods and words that we express in our communal prayers. Such restrictiveness may be a sign of our inability or uneasiness to engage the dark realities of life. Though we may sometimes feel that God treats us unfairly when suffering hits us, we do not find it appropriate to express our thoughts in public worship or even in private prayer. This reluctance could cause us to miss the point of worship. The failure to express honestly and openly our feelings and views before God in prayer often leaves us in bondage to our own emotions. This also denies us confidence and trust in approaching God. Praying the Psalms gives us an assurance that when we pray and worship, we're not expected to censure or deny our experience. Psalm 44, for example, can help worshipers articulate their experience of innocent suffering freely and adequately. Praying the Psalms helps people experience freedom of speech in prayer. The Psalms gives us words that we can neither find nor dare to speak. I admit, speaking truthfully about our feelings before God is appropriate. But catharsis is not the point of worship. Biblical worship is about acknowledging God for who He is 
It's recognizing, admitting the things that God says about himself. It's agreeing with him about who we are, born dead in sin, and who he is, a holy, righteous, eternal, sovereign God who sees and knows us, who knows if we believe him or not. True worship is not about expressing our feelings. True worship is about honoring God. By the way, did you know that the famous Ten Commandments of Exodus 20 do not begin with that first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me? They actually begin with the preamble in the verses before it. I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Isn't it fascinating that's left off in so many iterations of the Ten Commandments? Even the Ten Commandments, the very covenant God made with Israel, begins with a declaration of who he is. He is the sovereign Lord, and that's where our worship must begin. It's not about finding the proper words to express our obscure and complex emotions. I'm not denying that's a good thing, but that's secondary and after we acknowledge who God is and trust him. In fact, it's true that a lot of modern worship music, I think, gets this wrong. Many worship songs focus on subjective feelings, of begging the Holy Spirit to come when he has promised he will never leave us, that he will indwell us if we have really trusted God, trusted the Lord Jesus. But it's not wrong to sing those songs. It's just that that's not the sum total of worship. And we don't truly worship if we're singing and begging God for his presence. He says he'll be wherever we call on him. We are to acknowledge him. This lesson represents using the Psalms as a form of spiritual catharsis of learning to express our feelings, our reactions, our needs, our requests as the primary purpose of prayer. But worship begins with acknowledging the God of Scripture. There's a very real reason that both the Old Testament and the New repeatedly tell us to give thanks in all things. In fact, I'm going to refer to just one example of that as a little example of how true worship is formulated, how we can express our needs while acknowledging who God is. And remember, this passage I'm going to read from Philippians 4, 4 4-7, is written not to unbelievers, but to believers. Paul is writing to the Gentile church at Philippi. He is writing to people who have already trusted the Lord Jesus and have been born again. If he were writing to unbelievers, this is not what he would tell them. What he would tell unbelievers is, repent and trust the Lord Jesus. That comes before we can do any of these commands for the church. Here's what Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your considerate spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice 
that before Paul discusses how to pray or tells them what to pray for, he commands the reader to rejoice in the Lord always. And you say, how can one even do that? Well, I will be honest. If you're not a believer, if you haven't trusted Jesus and been born again, that's really not possible. That's something that those who know him can do. And we can do it because we know he keeps his promises. Just like the psalmists who knew God was faithful to his own covenants, to his own promises to them, we know that when we trust the shed blood of Jesus and his resurrection and receive his eternal life, we know he will keep his promises to us. We can rejoice even in the hard things because he never leaves us. And no matter what we go through, he is faithful and he never is unfaithful to his own promises. So Paul reminds them, rejoice in all things. Again, I say rejoice. He tells them twice, rejoice in the Lord. That's the beginning of worship. And then he commands, and yes, this is a command. He commands us as believers not to be anxious, be anxious for nothing. And you go, how does that work? As an Adventist, I used to read this passage and I used to feel guilt-ridden and anxious because I couldn't control my anxiety. I was anxious all the time, but I realize now I was anxious because I didn't know the Lord. And when I understood, when I finally understood the gospel and understood that Jesus was the one who keeps the covenant on my behalf when I trust his blood and his death and resurrection, when I realized that and the Holy Spirit indwelt me, I realized that for the first time in my life in over 40 years, I was not riddled with anxiety. So even as believers, we can be tempted to be anxious. We can see our loved ones suffering. We can see people we love going home to be with the Lord. We can feel devastated and wonder what the future will look like. But we know that God has promised never to leave us. And we don't have to be anxious because he has us and he holds us. And then Paul goes on. Notice that this command written to believers is that the Lord is near. And then he says, in everything, that means everything, in prayer and petition, asking the Lord, telling him, expressing to him what we need, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to the Lord. Now, you can only do this with thanksgiving if you know the Lord. And thanksgiving doesn't mean name it and claim it. I'm, I'm trusting for a car. I'm trusting for a complete healing. I'm trusting. For, that's not what that means. This means thanksgiving that God is God and that he is our savior. He is our father and he has us. And whatever we walk through, he will give us himself in ways we cannot imagine. He is taking care of us and what we need inside of his will, he will give us. Let your requests be made known to God. 
and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that is only possible for believers. So this outline that Paul has given believers for prayer, which begins with rejoicing in our Father who has sent his Son and saved us and filled us with the Holy Spirit, this outline for prayer is the same idea as the Psalms. It's just the, the psalmists lived before the cross, but they knew the same God. They knew the God who was already sending his son, who already was planning for the Lord Jesus to come inside time and save us. This is the same model that the psalmists used. They prayed their prayers of imprecation, their prayers of lament, their prayers of sorrow. They prayed those under the authority of their sovereign God, who they worshipped, who they honored. The God who saves us has made promises, and that's all we need to know. We can trust his word. Finally, this lesson tells us that praying the Psalms is essentially following the example of Jesus. In Wednesday's lesson, we find this statement. However, a mere repetition of the words of the Psalms with only a slight comprehension of their meaning will not produce the authentic transformation intended by their use. When praying the Psalms, we should seek the Holy Spirit to enable us to act in the way demanded by the psalm. The psalms are the word of God by which believers' characters and actions are transformed, not simply informed. By God's grace, the promises of the psalms are made manifest in the lives of believers. This means that we allow God's word to shape us according to God's will and to unite us with Christ, who demonstrated God's will perfectly and, as the incarnate Son of God, prayed the Psalms as well. Well, what is wrong with this? Number one, the Psalms are the Word of God. Yes, that much is true. But they are not the means of transforming the believers, read that, Adventists' characters and actions. Our characters and actions are only transformed when we trust Jesus alone, when we give up the paradigms of trying to be good, of trying to be sincere, but trust that the Lord Jesus did everything necessary for our salvation on the cross and in his resurrection. Reading the Psalms, praying the Psalms, does not unite us to Christ. Now, I believe that the author's intention is to say, when we read the Psalms, we're doing what Jesus did, and we're finding a connection with him by imitating him. No, that does not unite us to Christ. What unites us to Christ is belief. He gives us eternal life when we trust him. He fills us with his Holy Spirit and will never leave us or forsake us. That is the only way to be united with Christ. So if we have trusted Jesus, the Psalms are a wonderful depth of exploration in the sovereign care and faithfulness of God. But if we haven't trusted him, if we're trying to trust him, if we're trying to be good, reading the Psalms is not going to make it so. 
Only trusting Jesus makes it so. Only acknowledging our sin will drive us to the foot of the cross. Only by repenting and acknowledging that we are born spiritually dead as the Bible tells us we are, only by acknowledging that what we were taught as Adventists is not biblical truth, will allow us to come to the foot of the cross and realize Jesus is all we need. Only when we do that will we be able to place ourselves under his authority, and only then will his word minister truth and life to us in the way the lesson is trying to describe it. The Psalms become meaningful when we know the author, the one who gave the words to the authors of the Psalms. If you haven't trusted the Lord Jesus, if you haven't acknowledged your sin, if you haven't realized that you need something more than being good, that you need the actual righteousness of the Lord Jesus himself imputed to you, I ask you to trust him today. And if you do, you will discover that the Psalms have a depth and an impact you never dreamed.